this is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we begin with selections from Landowska on Music, written by Wanda Landowska, collected, edited, and translated by Denise Restu, assisted by Robert Hawkins, and published in 1964 by Stein and Day Publishers. Part 3, Chapter 2 Is music of the past understood today? About music of the past and us. Since the beginning of the renaissance of the music of the past, little progress has been made in the knowledge of the inner meaning of this music. True, the harpsichord has become popular, and societies and Baroque ensembles have multiplied. Yet real contact with the music itself has not been well established. As it is presented today by many performers, music of the past is like frozen meat. Many of the reconstitutions seem to be made of stucco, like the buildings of world fairs meant to be destroyed after use. Or they have only a front without a base or depth. One sees the papier-mâché framework and the trembling canvas. Masterpieces are defenseless against their executors, not to mention their transcribers. Musical forms with which we have lost contact, those we do not practice anymore except in school or in preparation for the Prix de Rome, these forms, because of their remoteness, have ceased to provoke immediate reactions in us. They are, so to speak, veiled by an isolating screen, and, according to specific cases and individual sensibilities, they extract from us only respect, veneration, and often boredom. If polyphony, as mastered so supremely by Bach, moves us deeply, it fills us first of all with wonderment. Our emotions grow in intensity only after being clarified by the effort we must make to understand and unravel the polyphonic network of intermingled voices. These poems of Bach, bulging with life, cannot be accepted with complete joy unless they are understood. They are deeply moving, but they also demand understanding. When listening to a complex piece of ancient music, people with lazy minds become angry if they do not find it beautiful at first hearing. They have no idea that this music is too proud to rush toward them, smiling and begging for easily won applause. To listen again and again, each time with more attention, to try to follow and understand the melodic line and the harmonies better, all that work which should be the auditor's own never occurs to them. G. Morey said, If through a slow and broad education of the senses and spirit we were prepared to feel beauty rather than to understand it, to enjoy it rather than to analyze it, 
we would find life truly sweeter. As if analysis were a workman's labor, while casualness would represent Sunday to him who toils six days a week, it is understandable that dismantling one by one the refined machines, plunging into the arcana of that which is mystery, and wandering into the labyrinth that is the thought of a great man, means work and very great effort. But he who knows how to love beauty, will he renounce this effort? Will he prefer to submit to a work of art without trying to penetrate its meaning? The only laudable nonchalance is that which an artist or a thinker who knows how to analyze can afford to indulge in. The gluttony with which the public rushes to buy tickets to hear the Goldberg variations saddens and discourages me. Is it through love for this music? No, they do not know it. This was written in May 1933. They are prompted simply by the base curiosity of seeing a virtuoso fight with the most difficult work ever written for keyboard. This and the snobbery of the first performance are the driving forces which inspire the crowd. And to think that my only dream is to play beautiful and noble music. The Art of Listening there is an anguishing mystery for us interpreters and also for composers. What does a listener hear? What is he able to perceive? In what ways does a musical text register in the listener's ear and in his brain? I think of this even before approaching the problem of taste, of attraction or aversion as it is experienced by every listener. We now have microphones to capture and reproduce sound, but we shall never have an exact picture of what the listener perceives, and we shall never know, even approximately, what he actually hears. And who among us knows how to listen? This absolute sense of hearing, which without preparation can at once embrace an entity, perceive it, see through it, and at the same time divide and subdivide it in all its components, is a rare gift refined by ceaseless practice. In my lifetime, I have met very few people who could really hear, and hearing everything does not necessarily mean understanding everything. I do not ask a listener to be able to dissect all there is in my playing, for instance. It would be too much to ask. But for pity's sake, do not replace listening skill with general ideas. When one listens to a masterpiece for the first time, one is astounded, crushed, gripped, and unable to understand or discern any detail. One submits passively and lets oneself be carried away by its beauty. But little by little, through subsequent hearings, one begins to feel, to distinguish, and to perceive isolated fragments at first and then to follow them in the ensemble. The first contact with a great work of art is a shock comparable to what we experience when we first meet the person who is going to play an important role in our life. Little by little we dare approach, 
look closer, and by and by we become familiarized with this person's characteristic movements, looks, and expressions. In the same way, ties, affectionate ties, are formed between us and the masterpiece. They make it become familiar to us. The richer the work, the more numerous and stronger are these ties. I believe this is the kind of rapport my audiences now have with the Goldberg Variations. This was written in 1952 or 53. What is the cause of our emotive reactions to music? Is it the remote reminiscence of something we have loved in our childhood? Is it because a secret string in us is touched upon that this total delight blossoms out? Or is it, on the contrary, nostalgia? Sometimes the discovery of a most unexpected or superficial likeness is at the basis of our reactions. A phrase of Couperin may evoke the curve of a Chopin melody, or certain progressions in Scarlatti may remind us of a Beethoven period or of a popular Spanish dance. We love to cling to these associations. They are something to lean upon or to spring from, and we feel their invaluable help when embarking upon the unknown. Is it because previously unknown music demands a real investigation that the apprehensive listener is usually hostile to any novelty? The dauntless one, however, eager for originality at any price, undertakes this investigation at his own risk and peril according to his capacity for absorption. The snob alone, always oscillating between the most contrary aesthetic movements, can put up with anything and come out safe and sound from any redoubtable expedition. Yet timorous or dauntless, only he who knows how to listen will be able to follow through. But there is more to it than mere hearing. What can be said about the innumerable impressions, so minute that they are hardly perceptible, which a sound or an ensemble of sounds generates in us? The meaning of these impressions grows as they invade us, and they dictate a specific image or a particular expression, that one and no other. Who shall ever understand what provokes these nuances in our joys and reactions? While one of us vibrates in listening to a certain melodic line or harmonic encounter, another will remain indifferent. These reactions may correspond to those which touch us most in other human beings or in animals. For instance, the ingenuousness or innocence of a motive always touched my brother Paul because innocence in all its manifestations always moved him. But what seems innocent to one person will be teasing, profound, or philosophical to another. Edmund Jaloux qualified the beginning of Mozart's G minor symphony as full of gladness, while Saint-Foy said it was hasty and anxious. This does not represent solely the eternal and permanent misunderstanding between interpreter and listener. It goes much further and much deeper. It is the misunderstanding between the work itself and the interpreter. 
We often hear musicians discuss in earnest the acoustics of a concert hall. Obviously, it is rather important, but I confess that it never was one of my main concerns. A hall with an echo? Too bad for the listeners, who will have to hear me play a Bach fugue twice without having asked for it. If a hall has poor acoustics, amplification of the sound is not the solution. The task of an interpreter should be to open the ears of his listeners. What interests me above all is the degree and quality of the receptivity of those for whom I am playing, or to whom I am speaking. It is for the good acoustics of the souls of my listeners that I care. For him who knows how to listen, music and words have a carrying power. You, my listeners, with your exceptional reactions to music, with your vivid and rich imaginations, you are like vibrating sympathetic strings. You represent the most beautiful spiritual acoustics. Knowing how to listen is a great art. Let us not be mistaken about that. We, the interpreters, are searching for intense, pathetic, moving accents, for refined sonorities, for a pure line, and an ideal ensemble. We are searching, and sometimes it seems that we have reached our goal. Yes, but how seldom we encounter listeners ideally understanding, with keyed-up attention, cultivated taste, and refined ears. I shall never forget the days I spent at Tolstoy's home, nor the hours I played for him. He adored music, and he knew how to listen admirably. While playing, I observed this luminous old man with his silver hair, his sweet and penetrating blue eyes, and I could see, as though reflected in a mirror, the agitation music provoked in him. He drank it, was steeped in it. He purred with pleasure or burst into big, rich, and sonorous laughter. He felt each piece with such intensity that it gave him new life. Tolstoy was a creator-listener. Fluctuations in Taste We read a phrase, musical or literary, written several centuries ago. It strikes us and enchants us. But was it received in the same way by those who lived when it was written? Was their understanding different from ours? And if so, in what way? How can we explain the fluctuations in taste? Berlioz, for instance, was truly revolted by Haydn's music, and the sincerity of his reaction cannot be doubted. I have been reading Paul Valéry. During his youth, it was the time of the Beethoven invasion. Baudelaire and Mallarmé were under the spell of Wagner, Valerie under that of Schumann. I wonder what these great poets would have said had they known Bach and Couperin. I think of their wonderment. But suddenly I say, no, it could not have been. The time had not yet come. Bach was not far enough removed, and contempt for the 18th century weighed upon Couperin. 
Bach's well-tempered clavier had been revered by all the romantics from Schumann, Chopin, and Liszt to Tausig and Bülow, but to hear it on the harpsichord would have hurt their ears and offended their taste. I never forgot the exclamation of Nikish, who said to me, How can you play the chromatic fantasy on the harpsichord? What an aberration! The strident, acidulous, and nasal sound of the harpsichord made people wince then. Yet this instrument is only a mirror of the sonorous color of Bach's orchestra. This color has been neither understood nor appreciated. What is more, it was despised. I remember how Urban, my composition teacher, used to hum derisively fragments from the B minor mass. But we went through Beethoven and Wagner, and finally became sated with their music. One has only to read Berlioz's writings to understand that, and now we turn to the music before Bach. We quench our thirst at the source of Monteverdi. We go back even much earlier. Josquin de Pré, Lassu, and Ockegem delight us. I shall never forget Brahms's numerous annotations on Scarlatti and Couperin. They are preserved at the Music Freunde Library in Vienna. In his enthusiasm for this music, Brahms went as far as to edit Couperin's harpsichord pieces for novello. This alone should suffice to quiet those who vociferate against Brahms's heavy romanticism. Through what channel did Brahms's love for Couperin come about? I often wonder. Yet bringing together Brahms's Saffichus Ode and Couperin's La Garnier, or his Tenebreuse, and Brahms's Auf dem Kirchhof, shows their affinity, although one must not look for literal likenesses. It is rather a question of climate or atmosphere. As much as I loathe to use these worn-out terms, they are apposites. Authenticity in the Interpretation of Music of the Past How can we men of today have the presumption to believe that we feel and play exactly like Bach, Couperin, their predecessors and contemporaries? It is altogether folly, lack of intelligence, and of assimilated culture. Can we guess what a poet, a great man of the past, would have said had he lived today? No, since we see him only in a stationary state as death left him. But alive, he would be in perpetual evolution, and would surprise us all the time. From a car or a train, we look at the fleeting scenery. But just close your eyes and reopen them a few moments later. Surprise! Do we foresee what is to come? No. Our eyes keep the imprint of what they saw last. Research goes on continuously, it is true. We follow musicological discoveries step by step with great attention. We study deeply trying our best to understand ancient precepts to the letter. With all our heart, we approach as closely as we can this remote music and these revered masters. But between them and us, Beethoven, Chopin, Wagner, Debussy, Stravinsky, and so many others have existed. 
Can we disregard the torrent and sublime pathos of their music by which, willingly or not, we have been permeated? The romantics and the moderns are now, in the middle of the twentieth century, more or less accepted and assimilated by us. We represent an accumulation, and we are powerless against that fact. And why should we rebel? Let us submit consciously to this transformation of matter. When we listen to Monteverdi or to the Virginalists, we feel them through the music that has settled in us, layer upon layer. Physically, humanly, it could not be otherwise. We cannot escape these influences. Anyway, would it be desirable? Must this fateful and marvelous enrichment of which we are the recipients prevent our feeling rightly the music of the past? Historical sense and awareness of perspective can be developed, cultivated, and refined if they are not inborn. They can and should be. Oscar B. once wrote, Londoska plays the ancient masters as if Beethoven had never existed. I was flattered by this homage, but never took it too seriously, and I am exasperated when I am told, if only Bach or Mozart could hear you, how happy they would be. It reminds me of what Chopin said to Liszt, who had just played one of Chopin's nocturnes. Whose piece is this? At no time in the course of my work have I told myself this is the way it must have sounded at the time. Why? Because I am sure that what I am doing in regard to sonority, registration, etc., is very far from the historical truth. To the purists who say to me, This was done in such a manner, you should conform, etc., I answer, Leave me alone. Criticize as much as you please, but do not shout. I need peace and silence around me, and those grains of irony and skepticism, which are as necessary to research as salt is to food. At no time in the course of my work have I ever tried to reproduce exactly what the old masters did. Instead, I study, I scrutinize, I love and I recreate. The means are of no importance. With the Jesuits, I say, the result sanctifies the means. When I am working out a registration, for instance, I search for one that seems logical and beautiful to me, one that does justice to Bach's prosody by being punctuated in the right places. I am aware that the disposition of the registers in the harpsichords of Bach's time differed somewhat from those of my playel, but little do I care if, to attain the proper effect, I use means that were not exactly those available to Bach. On Musicology the transformation of musical expression produced by Romanticism brought along the glorification of subjectivity and of contempt for the history of art, a scorn which, of course, was to generate ignorance. While at the beginning of this century, admirable musicologists bestowed upon us their staggering discoveries, 
The virtuosos, ignoring these revelations, persisted in going about their automatic routine. Their lack of curiosity for all that touches the history of their art very often assumed an aggressive character. That is why the works of restoration, in which any refined artist should be passionately interested, inspired only a sneering hostility in the virtuoso. With a nonchalance that ignorance alone could explain, they arranged the masterpieces. They played harpsichord works on the piano, the clarinet, the contrabass, the harmonium. They transformed them into Ave Marias and meditations. Everybody found that very natural, but the day someone took the liberty of playing the well-tempered clavier on the harpsichord, they cried, Shame! persevering and zealous musicologists pursued nonetheless their beautiful work. Little by little it was realized that an epoch which gave birth to works such as the St. Matthew Passion, the B minor Mass, Samson, Hippolyte Aricie, etc., must have known conditions which were certainly not inferior to those of our time. Cultivated artists understood that in order to do justice to this music, they had first to know those conditions thoroughly. And for that, one could not be satisfied with a small manual of the arts through the ages, or with a master key to ancient music with directions for its use. The necessity to go deep to scrutinize, to search, and, above all, to try to understand and bring to life an inanimate score was recognized. How long did it take to understand that in the writings of these so greatly despised Ra de Bibliothèque, the musicologists, there is often more piety, poetry, and love of music than in the most extravagant passages and ecstatic retardandos of many a virtuoso of fashion. Musicologists were blamed because they were not musicians. This is a commonplace. A true musicologist is a musician. To occupy oneself with the history of music does not mean plodding through a dull and sterile job smelling of mildew. It is not enough to parade with dates that can easily be found in any dictionary or to dwell on the number of decorations given the relative of a famous musician. Yet daubers and dealers in trash exist almost everywhere, in musicology as well as in other domains, alas. And among the musicologists there are also those who cannot make a musical analysis that I would call alive. Their works, often very good, do not achieve, however, that intimate contact with a musical phrase from which the spark of revelation springs forth. But when musicology is understood and treated by human, lucid, and generous minds, this beautiful and fecund science guides, enlightens, and fortifies us. Although born late, Musicology has progressed with giant strides. At first, of course, it was dogmatic. One did not venture beyond the letter of documents. We were a little rigid. 
It would be difficult for me to define now, step by step, each discovery which contributed to liberating me from this rigidity by illuminating the meaning of documents, revealing the life of the music of the past, and by lifting the shroud in which it was buried. I worked alone, and I played constantly. I accompanied the St. Matthew Passion. I gave concerts with singers. I acquainted myself with the concertos of Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, etc. The light came, little by little, and without breaking away from the letter of documents, I began to understand the immense circuit in which music of the past revolves. Blessings and Failures of Recordings Blessed is he who invented recording! But what a pity that he was not born centuries earlier! Think only of all that we would be able to hear and therefore understand better. Oh, the unending research in libraries and museums, the readings and collations of texts, the maddening desire to know the truth! We have come to understand that intuition alone, so glorified by the romantics, is not sufficient, and that it is necessary to sustain it with knowledge. Natural gifts have to be nourished with historical studies. Our indefatigable zeal in scrutinizing has been rewarded by a few hard-won discoveries. Yet how many difficulties remain! At every step redoubtable interrogation marks spring up before us, burdening us with new anguish. Then we have to go back to reading the treatises on interpretation in former times, to reading musical scores and reports from contemporaries of our idols, those who had known them and heard them play or sing. Reading, always reading. But how did it sound? What were the tempi, the registration of a fugue on the harpsichord, the ornamentation of a largo, the dynamics of Mozart's and Haydn's pianoforte, Handel's manner of improvising? Just imagine if, in the midst of these tormenting thoughts, we could place on our phonograph a recording of Scarlatti playing some of his sonatas, or of Mozart improvising cadenzas for one of his concertos. Imagine Bach's playing captured on records, his touch, his tempi, his registration, the unexpectedness of his inspiration, the pulsation of his heart. I hardly dare to think of it. I stagger at this idea. Little white dog, all ears and so attentive, if only you had been there some two hundred and fifty years ago. Bach, source of miraculous life, kept alive forever. His voice, which our anxious love seeks, that our nostalgic imagination tries in vain to divine, all this transmitted faithfully. Imagine hearing the multifarious voice of our master, his menacing roar at the organ, the superb duel he unleashed on the keyboards of his harpsichord. But also, Oh, surprise, oh, delight, the sweet chirping of the musettes, the joyous obstinacy of the bourrées, and those arabesques so light, and those trills like cascading pearls. The creator of the passions 
the builder of fugues, the architect of grandiose and learned thoughts, our god Bach, close to us, playful, mischievous, and tender. What joy without shadow! What security it would be to hear him! And what a lesson for grave men! Yet a recording catches only one moment, one aspect of an interpretation, when there are a thousand and one others, always different. And here lies the tragedy of recordings.